Okay, we are here for the second iteration of the Being in the World podcast with the one and only Dulcinea de Guerre. Since we last spoke, you've assumed a new role in my life and the life of the, the world as systems architect and chief operations officer of the Bombay Beach Biennale which happened recently with the glorious return of Lily and Stefan, the co-founders, bringing the Biennale back to its full glory. Um, last year, we'd kind of piecemeal the Biennale together. After COVID, it had, it had um, we took a two-year break from COVID. And then uh, you and I kind of did a really... Uh, what would you call it? Renegade. Like a renegade. Yeah. DIY. A DIY Biennale. I mean, the Biennale is always DIY, but there are like levels of DIY. Levels we of DIY. We did hardcore DIY in 2021. Yeah. Hardcore. And um, anyway, so I just wanted to, I, I think it's fun to have a, uh, a regular check-in with people that I love and admire um, on this podcast. And it's been a while since I've done one with a guest. The last two were with uh, ChatGPT, my recent obsession. And our last podcast was a year ago. Was it a year ago? Yeah, it was like in May. Wow. Yeah, or April. It's about a year anniversary of our podcasting. Podcast, yeah. So, um, so what have you been? What have you been thinking about since in that year? <laughs> um. Wow, that's a big question. I have been thinking about, uh, let me see if I can make it concise. Yeah. I've been thinking about mental health a lot. I've been thinking about um, how to like maneuver or evolve from being an emerging artist to whatever the next stage is, not to established, but like what is that middle transition period both as an artist and as a professional. So how to like, because I'm, I turned 29, I'm turning 30 this year. So it feels there's a lot of thoughts around future steps and learning or collating everything I've learned in my 20s, <laughs> ready to execute on all the lessons. There's been a lot of that. I finished my Saturn return for the astrology uh, minded for the astrology minded. <laughs> um, my Saturn return ended a, a month before the Biennale, um, and then we did the Biennale. And now it's so it's funny the open we road started ahead. the last podcast with a conversation about astrology. You want to always bring it there. I mean, I worry about alienating. Uh, well, your host. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I worry about you alienating everyone else. Um, but I, the, I mean, you asked me a really broad question, and so you can't get mad when I I'm answer honestly. I'm not mad. Um, I, I let's so so. Um, okay, just for the listeners, Dulcinea and I are uh, primary partners, mm -hmm. and uh, in a really exciting, I think. Um, a, a relationship that is very custom tailored to our own idiosyncratic personalities and needs and desires. Indeed. I think we do a very successful job in crafting a very untraditional, 
loving, committed relationships, and we can talk about that. Um, but I don't want to focus on that today. I want to focus because our last podcast was more about that, and I would rather focus on on work, politics, and ChatGPT. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's what we're not going to talk about. I would uh, love to talk about it maybe later in the podcast. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We can talk about large language models as well. Um, if you can honor my astrology remarks, I can engage in the in the chat GP3. No, I'm chat, kidding. I actually. GPT. Yeah, I know, but at this point, I'm committed to <laughs> saying its name incorrectly. <laughs> um, uh, no, I also honor how it's a it's you know, occupying a lot of your mind and it's inspiring you a lot. And I think it's worthy of, of conversation. I have a lot of thoughts on, on the, the podcast with chat GP T three, T three, four chat. So, uh, but later perhaps. Yes. Um, let's talk about mental health since okay. you brought that up first. Yeah. Why are you thinking about mental health? Well, I've been on my own mental health journey and also a lot of people around me, a lot of friends, a lot of loved ones have also been on pretty intense mental health journeys and sort of crises and what excuse me, what is it what is what do you mean mental health journey? I think hmm A mental health journey. I mean, it's such a buzz word right now. Um, yeah, like 10 years ago, I don't think yeah, I've ever heard the word mental health totally, journey. Totally. Which is something we hear all the time. A testament to a lot of people bringing it to the forefront of, you know, our cultural consciousness, especially as the world has entered into a sort of permanent state of crisis. Um, and so mental health, we could talk about societal mental health. I mean, we could talk about individual mental health, but personally, um, and I think a lot of this is is maybe still COVID fallout, you know? Um, we're still reckoning with the, the long-term effects of COVID, not only physically, but also psychologically. Um, and we're still kind of rebuilding uh, ourselves anew. A lot of people lost, I think, who they were during COVID. And... Um, that that rebuilding process has been rough and then i think in the last year for whatever reason there's also just been a lot of individual crises um i had you know, like a, a someone i grew up with you know died of an accidental fentanyl fentanyl overdose and and was dealing with a lot of mental health problems and you know, so it's not just my own journey but to answer your question what is a mental health journey i think that when let's say you have a crisis, um, if someone has a mental crisis, you are sort of forced to rise that rise to that challenge um, and people face it in many different ways. But I think the mental health journey is the journey to acknowledging your own neuroses, your own trauma, how it's affecting your behavior, um, being very self-reflective on when you're behave if you're getting some feedback from people and i have gotten some feedback from people where they're like you're a little something's going on um the mental health journey is listening to those people listening to yourself and going deeper asking yourself harder questions asking for help finding professional help finding friends finding a support network that i think is 
a little bit of what a mental health journey is. Are you comfortable talking about what happened on your own mental health journey in the last year? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. why don't you unpack <laughs> that a little bit? Yeah, okay, cool. It's the first time I've spoken publicly about this. But it's a small public. It's a small public in a way and also in not a way. But, a, you know, public is public. Um, so excuse my perhaps shyness around it. But um, I have always throughout my life have experienced um, periods, very small minor periods of what one might call an elevated state um and then in the fall that became pretty extended and protracted and i was in what we now know to call a hypomanic state for a, like a solid amount of time um that only sort of got worse because I didn't quite understand what was going on. No one really understood what was going on. What is, what is it for those who don't have never mm. heard the word hypomanic, mm. what does it mean? Hypomanic is, okay, so there's two kinds of bipolar. Um, there's bipolar one and bipolar two. And uh, bipolar two, which is what I was diagnosed with in um, January, February, um, is characterized by having only one hypomanic episode in your entire life. So a lot more people may be bipolar too if we subscribe to the DSM, you know, which is, I, I both do and don't. But um, I have, so ha characterized by having one hypomanic episode, which is um, a period of, uh, what's... Um, let you need less sleep you talk a lot you're very elevated very positive very efficient um you can do a lot you have a lot of creative thoughts it's seen as kind of a positive in some sense like being hypomanic is if you are disciplined you can really get a lot done um because yeah, you can distinguish it from mania which comes with actual psychosis psychosis delusions right. hallucinations exactly. uh the, you know d but but there's there's commonalities in the terms of in the sense that the it's a manic state mm -hmm. in which you're on the edge of uh let's say uh, operating on the same operating system as the your, the people around you indeed uh, yeah and I guess, I mean, I guess my experience was it of, of like feeling like you've always be, had a very, you know, idiosyncratic, unique personality. You've always been very excited, very energized, very inspired, very creative. And, and those have just been 100% positive qualities. And only at a certain point did it look like it was kind of like, like if you're driving a car and mm -hmm. it's really going well and mm -hmm. you're going high speed on a, your stick shift in a country road and there's a fine line between a really well-tuned machine that's you're pushing you know, just right to when the, that needle goes into overdrive and suddenly you become concerned that you might blow the engine up, right? Uh, it feels like- It's a great metaphor. There was a, uh, yeah. there was a suddenly a moment uh, where I and other people around you were concerned about that needle going into, uh, into a place of danger. Well, uh, it was also coinciding with a physical health problem uh, that may have may or may not have been caused by right, or mutually caused exactly it's very 
I simultaneously was having, uh, in a sort of extended hypomanic state, um, dealing with severe psoriasis and uh, gut problems all at the same time, which of course are all related. It's not like they're separate problems. Um, as our good friend said, there's like a constellation of symptoms um, that are, you know, definitely related though. And you lost enormous amounts of weight. I lost a lot of weight. To yeah. the point where people were very frightened around you. Yes, it's true. Yeah. Um, so this, yeah, this constellation of like overdrive mental state coinciding with you know i mean I, I remember thinking about these uh chess tournaments where they had to cancel uh like a, a big tournament because one of the leading players was burning six thousand calories a day just from stress and thinking <laughs> like your mind your brain consumes more calories yeah. than you do at the gym yeah. uh thinking actually requires a lot of power just like the computer now the fan is going because it's processing yeah, so indeed. if you start processing in overdrive you start to uh, burn calories that people don't realize this they have to actually stop this tournament before the health of this one player uh because he couldn't eat enough to uh keep up with the calories he was burning from wow. the stress and the uh and 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 the concentration that was required of him uh, so, so yeah, you went through a similar thing because it was also, you were trying to deal with these physical health issues yeah. and tried to do so by eliminating more and more food groups. Yeah. So it was like, became harder and harder to like yeah. keep you, um, uh, fed. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was very difficult to try and tackle three pretty huge, uh, obstacles that came that just all flared up at the same time. And so what are the three? the the gut the mind and the skin uh -huh. um because at this you know in november in the fall it's like my psoriasis was so severe i could it was hard to move you know it was very uncomfortable and psoriasis for those who don't don't know is a strange autoimmune disorder that western medicine has like absolutely no explanations for um and say it's basically incurable and you'll have it for the rest of your life whereas there are a lot of uh, non-western um modalities that offer different ways of of trying to heal it um though the root cause is not known uh so, so strange and so trying to trying to heal yourself of an autoimmune disorder that western medicine has like very little to offer other than steroids um and then also you know i was trying to use nutrition as a way to heal my gut and also help my skin it, i was like doing my best you know with a lot and so many people had opinions everyone had a fucking opinion uh, yeah, celery juice and like whatever it's just everyone had an opinion i was very overwhelmed trying to listen to everyone's opinions uh because i needed help right so i was like yes i want to hear everybody's opinions but then i got completely overwhelmed i was like i don't know what i'm doing it was very it was an extreme period and it also coincided with the most busy time uh, and most exciting time in my career yet which is not um, a coincidence and oftentimes people with a latent mental health mental illness whatever you want to call it mental neurodivergences um, a lot of times they appear in the late 20s um, this is this is like a statistically true and so some I can look back on my life and see flashes of when I was perhaps in a hypomanic state, but it seems to track that here I am in my late 20s and it sort of erupts uh, 
Um, and the same was true of my dad. Yeah. Oh, so you learned, as you were diagnosed, you learned that your father had similar issues or you always knew this? I always knew this, but the language was quite different. You know, my dad, my dad died when I was 11 um, and he was born in, you know, 1944. And he, I grew up knowing that he had well one was a functioning addict uh, completely um uh, like all the drugs in the world but very functioning as in like very successful um in his in his career in his industry and spent his entire life going through various mental health modalities i mean he was on lithium he was at the time diagnosed as manic i don't think bipolar was the word at the time um, but he was on lithium for a while. He hated it. He went through the whole mental health process. But I grew up hearing stories of his mania told in jest and as jokes. And so I grew up with the story of hearing my dad duct taping an executive to the wall because the executive said he didn't like the script that my dad wrote. And I grew up thinking, ah, so my dad's so crazy. Like, he's so fuck Hollywood. I mean, my dad sued Universal Pictures for like... $38 million like it was a lawsuit that no one would win and everyone told him that and he did it because he was like this is my show this is my creative control this is my baby of course he lost and was blacklisted from Hollywood for 10 years and didn't work and one might say that was a pretty manic decision right um, and it's also kind of iconic and so I grew up hearing these stories not necessarily seeing the other side, the flip side of of the kind of like, OMG, it's very funny that you duct tape someone to a wall or he threw a chair at someone also. I mean, he it was, it was Hollywood in the 80s. Like right. everyone was on cocaine. It was <laughs> wild. But like, so my mental health journey um, has made me reflect a lot on my dad. Um, and, and I've spoken to my mom about it. And it's made us, you know, connect deeper, more deeply. Yeah, that was my first you know, my first speaking to somebody else about, you know, being worried about you was calling your mom and asking, you know, are we, is, 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 is there something to be worried about here? And, uh, and she told me about your dad and she was like, oh, oh. you know, like <laughs> I, I, I suddenly saw all these parallels. And obviously, so that means obviously there's a, uh, a genetic component to this or an inherited component to it. And... I have grown up my entire life wanting to be my dad. Like, uh, because he died when I was 11, and I, he, I think, much like your dad, though you had more time with him, like, such a mythology surrounding my dad. He was such a, like, figure for those who knew him. He wasn't necessarily famous, but in his world, he was friends of the Grateful Dead, best friends with Jerry Garcia, very high up in Hollywood at his time in television. Um, and... Uh, you know, so I grew up wanting to be him. I just thought he was the coolest fucking person. And so there's this added layer of like, um, did I romanticize? What is the romanticization of also mental health? Um, because I've had this conversation with my dear friend Leo, who has at times been like, don't romanticize this, to which I respond, well, if you're not mentally ill, you are not paying attention. There's like that philosophy. It's, yeah, there's these like two, uh, 
there's these two extremes. On the one side is the over pathologization of, of, of mental illness. You can put it in a box, you can call it an illness. You can, you know, I, I was very moved and inspired by a, a kind of anti-psychologist named James Hillman, um, who had, he wrote a book called The Myth of Analysis. Mm. And he was a student of Jung's directly. He studied under him. And um, I met him in Italy. He was living in Italy and my father befriended him. And he was this legendary psychoanalyst who was famous for being against psychoanalysis for the reason that we tend as a culture, he said, to pathologize that which makes us interesting and unique and right. and um, and is our like take on the world. So it's very easy mm. for like the medical community, especially to just, um, yeah, it makes me emotional I know. too. <laughs> I like really <laughs> makes me want to cry, but I think it's true. But it's true, and 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 so so he said. I, I we had lunch with him once, and and uh, he said that the psyche or the soul is like a a room that we live in, or a garden, even is a better metaphor, because a garden you can cultivate to a degree, but it's also made of its own forces, right? right. So like it's not a jungle, no, yeah. and it's not a brick house. It's it's a garden that you kind of and and instead of thinking of the of the soul as something inside of you, it's something that you're mm. inside of, and you're tending, yeah, and and yeah, and you're tending, but also in collaboration with the environment. Exactly, right? exactly, yeah. So he he said that um, the problem with the kind of Western approach to analysis is that uh, if we go back to the room metaphor, is that it's trying to illuminate every corner of the room and and make kind of facile uh, judgments uh, that make the room uninhabitable mm -hmm. and um, mm. that it's actually mm. it's actually okay to have like um, I don't know why I'm feeling so much I know me too with the eclipse <laughs> <laughs> um, just so you all know this is a um, an eclipse in Scorpio and both Tao and I are Scorpios so it's hitting us no, I'm kidding I'm kidding <laughs> But anyway, the the, the no, idea. But it's emotional. It is it emotional. Is, it is. Like it is. It's it's raw stuff, and, and it's um, worth talking about frequently and more often. I agree, and so 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 just to finish the thought. On the one hand, you have this over illumination, over pathologization yeah. of uh, symptoms. So you have the DSM, you know, the manual of like, if you have these five symptoms, then you have this disorder. And if you have this disorder, there are these medicines that will, you know, deal with it. And in a way it's like, uh, it's dealing with like a lowest common denominator. By mm -hmm. definition, you're mm -hmm. saying like, these are commonalities amongst uh, people who have these very broad, very simple symptoms, right? So I think the first time you talked to a psychiatrist, you said after like seven minutes. Seven it, minutes seven minutes it was wild um i i don't think i recorded that one i did start maniacally archiving my experience through the mental health journey both with all of the doctors every psychiatrist like every appointment i have all of it recorded a lot of conversations with my friends who they don't know that i recorded them because i was perhaps still manic one might say um and also though deeply while experiencing the crisis or i don't know what what the right word is i'm i'm not loving crisis anymore i think it's overused but let's just say in the intensity in of the, the moment in the depths of the moment not only was i fully experiencing 
hypomania, which is a strange thing to experience, went only after people pointed out. When you're just feeling good, I mean... But you weren't always feeling good, though. You were feeling very anxious with it. Totally. Yes, that's true. Well, if I, you're, if, I, if, if I was just like, oh, Dulcinea is just feeling really good, I don't think I'd be so worried. There was like, I was there was like, a degree of anxiety. That I was went with feeling it. good for three months. Uh-huh. And then I think the point at which the weight was like, the psoriasis was really bad. The weight, I like to say that like my, my mental health started to appear so obviously on my body that in a way was a gift because... It, it made it so that the people around me were like, wait, what's going the on? Alarm You're looking, set off. The alarm got set off. And once the alarm got set off and I was in relation to other people talking about my mental health for the first time and seeing through their eyes my behavior, which I hadn't really seen up until people started to be like, what's this is a little weird? And my mom, like I, I, at one point I came home and my mom was like, what's going on and and from that point on it was a lot less fun but there was a period of time it was very fun when i was in new york i was really like vibing um not eating like not really sleeping yeah yeah, yeah. i remember writing five page letters to old professors that was mexico that was a different stage but like no in new york it was like i was just didn't feel the need to eat very much didn't feel the need to sleep didn't even feel yeah, I remember you saying, I like, didn't, I don't really need sleep anymore. Yeah, it was like this. <laughs> I need so much less. <laughs> I know. And it was a really weird thing where I wasn't feeling bad. I actually wasn't anxious at that time. Yeah. There was a moment where I called our doctor friend because I had an intellectual moment or rather an outside of myself moment where I was like, this seems weird. I was like, I'm sleeping like three hours a night and waking up at four in the morning and ready to just work 16 hours, don't need food. Like I I think I didn't eat for maybe two days because I forgot. And at that point, I called my friend and I was like, I was like, I feel okay, but something is maybe a bit strange that's going on right now. Like, do you have any thoughts? And his question was, are you hallucinating? And I was like, no. And he said, okay, well, unless you're hallucinating. Well, when you start hallucinating. If right. You start he hallucinating, was like, if you start me. hallucinating, no, no, go to the hospital. He was right. like, if you start hallucinating, you go to the hospital. And I was like, okay. I was staying alone in my friend's very strange apartment at the time, um, editing a lot, like, so on my computer all day. And that was a weird moment. And, and he, but, but really, he was like, just eat. And I was like, okay. So I forced myself to eat. And, you know, that moment passed. But what I'm, I think what I'd like to bring up is I feel in a strange position where my whole life I have been extremely high functioning. Um, Even let's say when I was a really severe stoner and during college and in the years after college, I mean, still like the best student in my class, like still working, like doing not to not to boost myself up, but but doing more than most people around me. And I think when you're high functioning and you deal with mental health problems, it's a tricky thing because I'm really good at pretending sometimes. Yeah, I'm really good. And and so so (sighs) to, to, to finish the thought from earlier, I was trying to say that on on one hand, we have the over pathology 
pathologizing. And on the other hand, we could have the over-romanticizing. Right. And um, so because the, 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 the antidote to the pathologization, according to, to Hillman, uh, was, is to recognize that what we are calling illnesses are what make us who we are and, and what make us lovable, amazing, unique individuals. Unique, so, yeah. so the question is, where do you find the line between the, what I remember saying to Hillman was like, I guess if the, if you, illum- if you don't illuminate the room enough where every time you walk in it, you're bumping into the furniture mm. and you're tripping over, mm. I think then it's time to at least acknowledge that there's an issue, right? Mm-hmm. And let's see mm-hmm. what we can light, we can shed on it literally and see what do we want to preserve of this what do we want to like uh just steer in the right direction Mm -hmm. and again what do we do in your case to channel the uh the positive benefits of the creativity the inspiration the sense of possibility all of that is so beautiful and you wouldn't want to like do away with it like that's probably why your father hated lithium right you don't want to just uh and it's why i decided not to go on medication which was a very long thought process yeah. for me um well there's some medication like you smoke weed and that's oh, a helpful yeah, thing to let me be specific eat. um i for i i forwent <laughs> is that a word is it i don't forgoed? know forgoed i forgoed and forwent um uh, going on any type of daily mood stabilizer or antipsychotic um both of which were offered to me and both like i had one doctor tell me if i don't go on mood stabilizers i will die which was a really in crazy what way thing would to you what, did you think you would die um that i would go like reach a psychotic state and like kill myself by, either by accident or by suicide i mean this is literally this is the same person who diagnosed me in seven minutes right. um and the way she was talking i was just like you are not helping the situation you think you're helping you have now introduced the idea into my head which has never been there before that i might some day I had another doctor, a doctor who I really love, look at me and tell me, I asked him, I said, do you know um, people who have, you know, had this diagnosis and who've managed to stay the course without going on an antipsychotic or a mood stabilizer? And he said, well, I'm sure it's possible, but you know, I had one client who didn't go on medication and one day she was on a 12-story balcony and decided she could fly and she jumped and she died. And he said this to me, looking at me so plainly. And I really like this doctor. And I was like, why would you put that narrative onto me? You are putting, this is to your point of like the bipolar box. Right. You, you try and like categorize the wide breadth of neurodivergence into like one box. And so you have a, you had a person who decided one day she could fly now you have given me the anxiety that if i don't take it's almost like a threat like if i don't take the medication one day maybe i'm going to wake up and be on a balcony and just think i can fly yeah and of course we have we there's a political element to this that we can't go ignored like these doctors are all in the pockets in some form or other of the pharmaceutical industry that is trying to peddle these products that you need to then be dependent on for the rest of your life. I will say the first doctor, yes. The second doctor, no. The second doctor who told me the balcony thing, 80 years old, he he is in his own, like he's so established in his field. He is not peddling medicine. He actually is very aware of over-doctoring me and 
my mom kept, this is a GI specialist and so my mom kept wanting me to see him and and then he would be like I don't want to overdoctor you I could continue go, running tests on you but I think that this is a mental health problem and he recommended me the psychiatrist all to say even an amazing doctor who is not peddling drugs yeah. can say something like that out of the goodness of his heart, right? But yeah, but there, I, I don't think there's doctors in the United States, especially that are completely immune to the the the, the knee jerk medicalization of things right. in some capacity. I think you're right. You know, and no, I, I think, think that right. they've been trained in, with the idea that you know the the first the go to is generally some sort of uh, prescription, right? Uh, yeah, very quickly too. Yeah, and 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 the way you see the, the whole way the the structural way that the, the medical system is set up is that you very quickly deal with the doctor and they very quickly prescribe something. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been my experience for everything, minor to major, to myself, to others that I know. Mm -hmm. It's very different from uh, other modalities, even European. Like totally, uh, you know, in Italy, they're way more reticent to prescribe painkillers. Mm -hmm. And you know it sucks because mm -hmm. for in some ways because people uh, are in a lot of pain and they right. don't get you know they're 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 much more there's a more cautious approach and you might say a more sometimes maybe a religious approach mm. that's informing you know that if that's you're suffering you're supposed to be suffering in mm -hmm. some way or it's good for you to suffer right um, which I don't agree with. But I remember my when my grandfather was dying of cancer, like he went from Italy, he was uh, American, but lived in Italy. And he's the first like half of his treatment was in Italy and the second half was in the United States where he ended up coming to die. Mm. Like he um, he said in Italy, they, they would like think more holistically and mm -hmm. expansively about your situation, but also you'd be in a lot of pain. And then in America, you'd be like, I'm uncomfortable. And they would give you a painkiller. And you're like, that's, I'm not, I didn't say I was in pain. I said I was uncomfortable. Yeah. Like that's not, should be, that's not what I need. I don't need a, a shot of morphine for that. Right. I need uh, to, to deal with the issue that's making me uncomfortable, you yeah. know? Um, which there's just not the time in our culture to deal with often. Or you pay for it. So the GI specialist that I saw, I sat down with with 90, 90 minutes. Um, 90 minutes. I actually, because I am blessed to come from a privileged family and my mother loves the Western medical system as in it gives her a lot of, it helps her with her own anxiety. And so I saw a lot of like literally the best doctors in Los Angeles and they all sat with me for 90, to, 90 minutes to two hours. But that's because my mother paid up the and ass for that. Yeah. Oh, no. A lot of the doctors I saw weren't even covered under insurance. As in, wow. like, Dr. F I shouldn't say his name, perhaps. Um, the GI doctor and the psychiatrist both take no insurance. Wow. That's how old and established in their field they are. And that's how, like... That's why they can sit there with me for 90 minutes. And so it's possible to have that kind of medical care in, a, in the United States, only if you're rich. Right. Um, uh, be, and, and if I didn't have my mother to help support me, I could not have gone through all of the, like I'm br really broke. So I'm very privileged to have a mother 
who will pay for all those things? I also will say I think some of it was a little wasted money, but that's fine. You know, <laughs> if you want to buy peace of mind, that's okay. Like my blood work came back. Everybody thought I was had cancer, something insane. And guess what? I just had a B12 deficiency. Um, you know, but well, now yeah, I know. That, that, that's, that was why it was important to... To check, of to course. To check, eliminate yeah. those... Uh, no, but then I went to a rheumatologist and the rheumatologist was like, why are you here? And, you know, that was like $400 down the drain. Like, but to make my mother feel better because my mom was like oh my god you have a rheumatoidal like you know um and and i'm not like my mother has been just a rock and so fantastic i'm not criticizing in any way it's just uh when talking about the medical system in america it's always a class issue um it's it's just you can get the medical care but you have to pay up the ass for it Wow, there's a lot, a lot I'd to like unpack to, here. I'd like Go to ahead. ask you about your relationship to, to mental health and how you relate to that concept personally, interpersonally. Well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, well, I've been surrounded by, you know, even before knowing you, I'm I'm attracted to you know, unusual people and uh, environments. I think, you know, this could actually be an interesting transition into Bombay Beach even. Totally. Because, um, you know, there's places that cultivate uh, and accept and sometimes reinforce uh, issues that could be deemed mental health issues or could be deemed originality just like we've been talking about um so both in my upbringing and in the places and environments and projects i've been drawn to i most uh uh i think one of my dating profiles says uh repelled by conformity Mm -hmm. um that's like uh, that's hell to me like if you show me you know one of these uh neighborhoods in which all the houses are the same and you know it's safe it's gated and the streets are all clean and the houses are all big and comfortable and all the you know appliances are new and they work i don't think i could think of a worse place to live Mm -hmm. you know like to me that is the my idea of hell because Mm -hmm. it's this leveling of all differences right and i think what makes life worth living is accentuation of the differences and a a celebration of the the original and the new and the and the surprising so so i've been drawn to you know we also get drawn to what we come from of course and so i come from a very unusual family that was steeped in in uh self-medication um my father's mother died when he was nine his father was you know in world war ii and world war one was born in the only year where he had to fight in both world wars and so he was basically an orphan Mm. with with money again because like he came from this illustrious family but no uh you know war and no parental supervision or or family of any kind and he turned to sex and drugs right and like as as medication as as seeking some sort of uh uh, comfort in this in this in a in a world that must have looked very bleak imagine italy in in the 30s and 40s mussolini Mm -hmm. and so like my father had when he was from 13 to 18 
he had a lover in her 30s who was um, basically raising him mm. and teaching him how to love but and live, and yeah. and 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 it was a really unusual situation to have this like maternal figure who was also his lover who was taking the place of his mother so important. <laughs> it is it's wild and and uh and and then he started taking drugs very early on and um at the time now often we think of drug issues as a as a working class issue or issue of poverty at the time it was like only someone from the highest class could totally. even have the luxury of of finding or or pre-war on drugs into, right yeah he was like using uh, using yeah exactly he was like you know started using heroin in the 1930s and cocaine and opium, when it right? was yeah opium afterwards uh, after the uh, when he met these great artists like Jean Cocteau who taught him to smoke opium and the ritual of so anyway all this to say that um, there was a mixture of an original approach to existence a celebration of originality and of personality uh, of great storytelling as you were talking about your father like there's something there's a there's a mythologizing uh, aspect even in the way he would narrativize his own existence you know like he would like tell stories that as if they happened to him even though they happened to somebody else because mm -hmm. it was a better story that you say this the other day building this happened the to myth. me building the myth, building the myth. Yeah. constantly constantly and um so so i grew up like surrounded by uh, lovable addicts <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so i have a love-hate relationship with this um and uh a, a desire to cultivate uh, the 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 beautiful aspects of it, while not negating that there is some there are some real issues there that need to be confronted. So the the question is, how do you how do you navigate that that narrow path? Does that answer your question? I don't, know. I don't think it did answer the question, but it was a lot of good reflections. I think I'm seeking a little bit deeper now that you've said all that okay. now it's like what, do you, what do you think of like do you characterize yourself as neurodivergent like what is your own personal relationship to um your own notion of the status of your mental state your mental health it's funny i'm i've always like just embodied the the the, the attempt at stability so like I feel like I'm like the eye of the tornado a little bit yeah. <laughs> with like people around me, um, but needing to be also being the middle child, uh, being the the the, the responsible one. Yeah. I was the, I was the only good student yeah. in my family. I was the only one who went to college. Mm -hmm. um, so there was an attempt to be the normal one, mm. but also like cultivating the the not normal mm -hmm. so i guess i i also i do just objectively i think i'm blessed with a a, a rather stable and you know uh, sunny disposition yeah um for the most part mm -hmm. you know um obviously i think that's true yeah yeah but so, you have adhd 
Well, so I, I, or I think I have adult, never been I have adult, such, I have adult onset. I like think this it's is a more also neurodivergence, right? It's not just like bipolar and depressed people. We can yeah. talk about autistic people. We can talk yeah. about people with ADHD. Like, fortunately, like in, in school, I didn't have anything like that. I was very, uh, I was good at getting my homework done and focusing. I, I blame, and, but you were anxious as a teenager. No? Yeah, I definitely had anxiety. I definitely, um, I have, I definitely have been, I think of more victimized than, than others possibly by the, the cell phones and the social media and the, the lack of structure in my own existence that have kind of made a perfect storm to cause a kind of adult onset ADHD. Um, and have you ever sought a real diagnosis around that? No, I always just try and like environmentally deal with it. Like, we're, you know, creating <laughs> rules. Now we've made this deal. I, I've been trying to get Dulcinea to quit with this uh, vaping. And she asked me to quit social media for a year in exchange for, uh, for, for quitting the vaping. And I'm wholeheartedly agreeing to it. So um, hopefully causing us to focus more on things like this indeed deeper more focused things no absolutely yeah i think i'm just probing a little bit because i i think there's one can be not depressed have a happy disposition like i don't think you're plagued with depression in the way that i, I see other people and I, i'll say i i'm not really plagued with depression i anxiety is my thing and overthinking and sometimes i get depressed but depression as like a capital d word has never felt like my my thing um but what i'm probing with you a little bit is like i think you um are setting yourself up as like i'm i'm okay like i'm actually stable and i want to just probe a little bit deeper i mean you are stable but you are also neurodivergent um as someone who spends right you hope so but like it's like you, there seems to be a reticence of claiming that. Like I just had to, in like. Well, yeah, I've never, I've never, never done it. Never, never thought about it in those terms. I've always, yeah. I mean, we can, we can. Uh, I don't. I'm not putting it now. on you. It's just, a, <laughs> it's like, it's just um in a what, in a dialogue else? where I'm talking about my own, you know, yeah. being raw and vulnerable, which it, it's it feels good but i also want to kind of invite you to meet me a little bit where i'm at because i do think you project a very um you both are and project a very like happy optimistic everything is okay everything is good um it's one of your most intoxicating qualities is this you're always like you're feeling good most of the time and so it's good it's so nice to be around someone who's feeling good a lot of the time but there's so much more to the story no like i think i i don't know i imagine yeah i mean like maybe i should like uh, uh speak to a therapist at one point in my life i don't know i've always wondered about that oh, i've just wondered everyone if I, like, should go to therapy uh, yeah yeah I, yeah everyone really should um oh, but i think it depends on the therapist a lot um totally I think some people are led astray um, by by charlatans. Um, I'm not. I'm not telling you you need to go. To no, no, no. But I just, I just like, yeah, that's just to make it a more like um, a dialogue. A dialogue because right. I think that 
it's easy to sit there and interview someone about their mental health and it's a little harder to like turn it back around on yourself and be like okay well everybody in some sense even if you're stable and happy is on some kind of mental health journey yeah you know and um and i think your engagement around your focus which started last year with the meditation and and the, 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 the dulcinea helps me a lot in these ways in these little deals that we make so the first was to quit smoking cigarettes and that was the trade was doing transcendental meditation twice a day so you quit, which the, did. You quit the cigarettes and i and i've been doing yeah do you think it helps yes really? i think it's the start of a journey yeah <laughs> you yeah. know i I certainly think that it's not the be all end all, but it's a no. really good foundation because of its discipline um and uh, yeah, so so i could I could maybe say that this journey of maybe undoing the victimization, I thought it was very interesting, your choice of language there, like I became victimized by the technology i let's circle back to that um but that your, as I've known you of the past few years, watching your own negotiation with your focus, wanting to be more disciplined, showing up for your music, spending less time on the screen, is in a sense a mental health journey. Cause you're trying, there's like something you might be, um, you wanna optimize, right? It's yeah. maybe not, a, you're not in crisis, but you wanna optimize. Is that a mental health journey? I'm actually just asking now. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 how do for me the biggest like what I wake up in the morning and what I struggle with most is how to focus and how to like go deep into things because I know that that's the most profoundly satisfying thing you can do and it's like what I watch you do with such like the admiration and envy. Um and 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 hope you know in in partnership also in with the ability to create things together that compensate because i've also there's a the other tendency in our society is to um always go back to the individual and the inter interior yeah. and create this kind of separation between like a, your mind and the world the subject object distinction is deeply rooted in our culture. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you talked about like ending your twenties, uh, my kind of broad strokes, uh, analysis of now I'm 47 of like the difference between like your teens when you think like you're invincible <laughs> and then your twenties and you could do anything and your twenties, you're trying everything and failing <laughs> and, and succeeding at some and yeah, failing at totally. others, but you're like, I can do it all. Right. You know, and, and, and I'm going to like revolutionize like my, I'm going to make a movie that's going to be reinvent cinema and I'm going to like write a philosophy paper that's going to reinvent philosophy. Yeah. Those are like the kind of very, <laughs> the types of thoughts one has in one's 20s. Especially and then, if you, uh, you know, leave a school like Berkeley or Northwestern yeah. where they're like amping you up, you know? <laughs> and then and then in your 30s, you're, you're, you're kind of more like uh, confronted with, with reality. Um, and negotiating in a slightly yeah. more uh, nuanced and uh, you know site-specific, appropriate way, what you can and can't do. And I think by your forties, you need to have uh, come to a realistic uh, 
sense of what you are and what you aren't capable of. And to me, the people that I've seen and most admired as role models uh, then start to surround themselves with p other people who are able to compensate and 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 complement mm -hmm. their your your whatever deficiencies you might have. Mm -hmm. If you're realistic about that, you can create partnerships, both romantic and creative and professional, mm -hmm. that uh, acknowledge that right? as a yeah, and, and friendships and and mentorships yeah. and that should be ongoing for your whole life. Yeah. I think that you can make community in all of these ways that are, are is greater than what the individual is capable of you know yes i mean this makes me think so much about durkheim um you know durkheim is thought of as the sort of inventor of sociology um not the inventor but he was like the first um person to kind of outline what that field was in the 1800s and his whole theory was that society works based on interconnected inter needs that you know we need other people to do the things that we can't do and that is the very fabric of society and he was one of the first thinkers um not a he, he's a philosopher but he's really a sociologist and i think the difference between the two is the sociologist is is looking materially at the world um and sometimes the philosopher is doing so but sometimes the philosopher is like up in the fucking clouds thinking about like tables and why they exist whereas the sociologist is always rooted in the material in in the culture um and in looking at you know taking a look at the actual world, what's going on around, and trying to offer an explanation as to why society is the way it is. And so this, uh, Durkheim's one of my favorite writers um, and favorite thinkers. He's very underappreciated, I will say. If you've not read Durkheim, I highly recommend um, the, the, the di distribution of labor. Um, uh, it's fantastic. And it, just to your point, um, no one can do it all, right? Or we can try, and maybe a few people can actually do it all, but most of us can't. And so, it's. it's I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the way we are, our the conversation is unfolding, in the sense that we there's like levels of explanation that inform how we understand our position in the world mm -hmm. both as individuals and as members of a class and a group and it's interesting we've been kind of going through you know it's funny we started both podcasts with this kind of <laughs> astrological <laughs> explanation it's a type of like narrative and a type of mythology meaning and meaning making and then we move into the psychological and um uh, and we like went on a little trip talking about the uh, psychological in you know tool of like interpreting mm -hmm. our existence and then you have a, a philosophical approach and you have a political approach mm -hmm. and um each of these like sheds a different type of light uh, oh, and then we have an, uh, you know and they're all like narratives right we talked about like yeah. the narrativizing uh and you know telling the stories of our own lives and it's interesting that I've always shied away from, I, I've been more drawn by my predispositionally to a philosophical approach. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been really illuminating, like engaging with you and Aaron to like uh, reveal the importance of 
uh, sociopolitical understanding, and um, and and it's and it's been really fun to bring it back to earth, to engage with all of these things in Bombay Beach. Indeed, because uh, they all come together. They come together they to a head together. in a major way. Mental health meets. Uh, uh, meets like you know sociopolitical and economic romanticization uh, pathologization both at the same time uh, yeah, class the, difference the, the interpersonal the uh, you know at what point is do we require let's say we think about a, a you know a friend of ours who's in crisis and often the crises in Bombay Beach are really fucking serious Severe. like i don't think as many people deal with the imminence of death or suicide as we do in a place that is so deeply fucked up and faced confronted with the implications of uh, environmental mm-hmm. and economic uh, mismanagement and catastrophe isolation. right isolation and isolation. isolation all of these issues are in this like like concentrated and magnified in this little community of 200 people uh, and and you know we haven't even talked about art I as, know, a, as yeah, a concept totally when, when so, so much, much of our art about. is so much of our lives are based towards like using art as a way to like explore all of these issues right so so yeah. then the question becomes like at what point let's say we have a friend as we do who is in a deep uh, uh, crisis um, at what point is a political mm-hmm. approach mm-hmm. to understanding it the most useful and at what point is a psychoanalytic approach right. the most useful at what right. point do you want to de- bring in institutional help mm-hmm. at what point do you want to bring friendship mm-hmm. at what point do you need to create boundaries family and family and all of these issues so drugs <laughs> both pharma pharmacological drugs pharmaceutical drugs and recreational drugs yeah. it's all and then, very... and then individuals who are deeply deeply idiosyncratic yeah and 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 not conforming to normal standards of behavior totally. and acceptability. Because, you know, the other thing is those houses that are all the same. Like I was watching uh, John Oliver's last, uh, like two episodes ago, he did something on uh, homeowner associations. Oh, yeah. And, you know, these communities, even when the houses aren't looking all the same, I think something like 80% of new housing is part of a homeowner association oh, in the God. United States. And that means you're so paying scary. every month, even if you own your house, quote unquote, you're paying every month to have a corporate board of people tell you how to behave, yep. including what you can put in your garden, exactly. what color you can paint your garage door. Uh, like uh, everything is controlled, con- controlled, So like controlled. Anne Rand in my mind, like those types of uh, units, like ironically uh, is just... It's so, so I, I, someone posted a long uh, Instagram post about the Fountainhead. Um, the, so Anne Rand's been on my mind um, because I can't, I can't believe people still like engage with her in the way that they do. I mean, it's, it's okay to read her books, but well, anyways, I'm not going to go off into a, an Anne Rand tangent, but what you're describing is exactly what Anne Rand describes in her books, though, of course, in her books, it's under the under the ideology of communism, but here we are in, ca- in in the ideology of capitalism having the exact same... Um, Loss of individual freedom. Indeed. So. It's that so <laughs> interesting. And, and here we're, we're, you know, what makes Bombay Beach interesting 
uh, is that all systems have failed there. Indeed. For so it cre- creates an opportunity for new. Uh, go ahead. You want to? Th- no, I just was excited for you to say it. <laughs> No, so, so yeah, where everything has failed, like it's always darkest before the dawn, right? Like there's this uh, sense of like n- n- new possibilities that are... New systems. New systems. That's what I was wanting you to say. <laughs> so yeah, Dulcinea gets very excited about systems and me as a th- this being very chaotic and unorganized mm-hmm. in my thinking, this is one a ca- case of that compensation and accepting that I am not systems, that I'm not predisposed to thinking about systems or to emphasizing them. And I appreciate it so much the way you've come in and, and, and realize that that's what's needed. Uh, and, and hopefully we each bring something to the table. Well, yeah, I mean, you bring so much to the table that I can't bring. I think that it's, um, when talking about trying to build new systems, uh, it takes, it's both really exciting and really complicated because you don't, there's a line from the performance that I give during at the Biennale, which is, um, I'm gonna try to remember it from heart. Um, Oh my God, of course, it's just completely evaporated from my mind. It's so obnoxious. Um, Let it come back. A little closer to this. Oh, Oh, Um, what did you say right before? charge each mind. person brings something each person brings something to the table to in terms of systems versus oh the liberation of a cumbersome past isn't worth anything if it isn't um if it isn't uh, applied to the benefit of the present and the production of the future that uh, there's one i'll say it again the liberation of a cumbersome past isn't worth anything if it isn't applied to the benefit of the present and the production of the future. And so when talking about building new systems, one has to necessarily confront the systems that are broken. And Bombay Beach is the most exciting opportunity to do exactly that on a scale that you can actually wrap your mind around. And that is why I think that the Bombay Beach and the Bombay Beach Biennale, what is happening there is one of the most fascinating things that is happening across the country. I, I, I can't say the world because I don't know what's happening in the world, but certainly in this country, it is one of the most interesting things that's happening. Um, and I I think we should do another podcast only about the Biennale. I was just going to say that because I, I, was, we, we, I, I thought we were going to go into that and, and art and our work there, and we ended up going on this other very interesting I, and before like and timely yeah like th- this this conversation is very timely i think i think let this just be part one of two and let's do another one when uh when we meet again we have an exciting time ahead of us going I, we, we're, we're in mammoth now i've been here for uh almost a month in a cabin in the mountains if you're watching this on video you can see our lovely woodsy <laughs> idyllic <laughs> environment and it's it's may and it's still like 20 feet of snow outside it's wild um and and then we go back to the desert next week for a few days and then we're going to a conference in taormina in uh, sicily about consciousness i'm not really so much going to the conference you're coming to hang I'll, out i'll hang out i'll i'll pop you'll hear, my you'll head hear patrick so patrick my oh, co-host is he giving a talk no but he's gonna oh. be he's also there just he's as an attendee book, yeah. um just as a as a visitor as a listener i'm actually excited to 
be. Uh, so that's that, that's gonna be that's gonna mean that I, there's, there's new episodes coming. Absolutely. With Patrick House, who's been MIA for a while, or not MIA, it's just we've just been in different worlds. But so I, we're reuniting with Patrick in Sicily. So I'm really excited to have, um, uh, you know, one or two more episodes with him while there, and also. Uh, uh, Christoph Koch is going to be there again and David Chalmers who I've always wanted to have on the podcast who's like one of the world's leading authorities on the philosophy of consciousness and uh, and then after that we're going to be in London for a little bit and you're going to go I would Berlin. love to do a three-way podcast with Patrick about the brain because yeah. Patrick has really beautiful insightful things to say around the pathologization around around the dsm um i I would love to do a follow-up while you guys are attending this consciousness conference it'll be so fun i do have some closing remarks um well one i do want to do i do want to do another podcast following up on like our DS dynamic because I think that was the focus of our podcast last year and I'm a, I'm different now I've grown a lot and I think I I'm maybe a little bit more eloquent than I was I have I have a strange for those who listen to that episode I'm a little bit like oh I could have done a bit better so let's I mean that's always me I'm always like I'm gonna do a bit better so, yeah one thing we um, do is I think one of the greatest things about our relationship <laughs> is without being naggy or pushy in the most uh, gentle but like insistent ways possible giving plenty of room for you know uh choice and individual you know direction i do think that and i would shy away with from this in in other relationships and i don't recommend like going for this in its own right but there's an element in which we in our uh, different ways are kind of pushing each other to be the best self and 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 challenging each other and our ds dynamic is a really fun way to like create a container yeah. in which I can like uh, quote unquote train you uh, you know uh, one the of the things I helps. was one of the things that 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 was a little project of mine is to get you to stop saying like and um so much and this I, I it's worked like and the laughing for you, you uh, yeah, the first thing the was laugh, the nervous, the nervous laugh, laugh. Uh, yeah which you used know to, yeah used to yeah you just 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 kind of have this little tick of 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 laughing after many things that you said that even though there wasn't that wasn't the appropriate response but there's a, there's a tendency to people to do this anxious, as a way yeah. to kind of as an anxious response yeah. to like to to kind of take away from the committing to what you're saying right, right? of course yeah um, it's like an out yeah. you know you're undercutting yourself and I'll say it was very annoying for a long time having Tao tell me this because I was like stop it you're being mean but but I'm also very sensitive um but you know two years later three years later because really you started on the laugh thing like a month into us no, meeting you. I will never forget that receiving that text it was insane because it would um, also take text form it would be like um oh we just wrapped up ha 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 and it was like there what do you mean ha 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 ha, ha. there's nothing funny about it <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, all to Own say, it. I Own am now grateful for the ways in which you push me and challenge me. I actually do really think it is like part of the reason why I am so still deeply in love with you and, and feel committed to you because you are always really genuinely trying to make me better, even when it's annoying. And I'm like, stop. You are like, no, I want you to be better. And I feel that. Um, And I think we have that symbiotic relationship. And it's really beautiful. 
Yeah, it definitely is, goes. It gets a little intense sometimes. I mean, we're both Scorpios. We both go real hard sometimes. But I think that I'm I am certainly a transformed human since meeting you. Also because of my Saturn return. It's not all tell. <laughs> um, but wait, I actually do. Sorry, my closing remarks is like. I want to do a follow-up episode on the DS. Uh, I do want to do an episode only on the Biennale. And I just want to say that now that this is in some sort of public sphere, um, if you are someone who knows me and you've just learned some information about me through this podcast, it's like such a strange, like, I don't know who I'm speaking to, but people do come up to me and say, I heard you on Tao's podcast. And so... You know, I would invite you if you it, please talk to me about it. If you find, you know, you want to talk about mental health or what being diagnosed as bipolar two feels like, uh, any of those things. But be mindful. Um, be mindful in how you use language such as bipolar, such as mental health. Um, yeah, these are fraught, sensitive issues. Yeah. I think. Well, yeah. One of the things that was most difficult for you to do deal with around this all of this was the uh, just overabundance of unsolicited advice, yep. right? So yeah, yep. we've talked about in our, we've, we've established again for this uh, theoretical public out there listening <laughs> on your, wherever you are, um, we've established a very carefully crafted dynamic mm -hmm. between us that we mm -hmm. talked about a bit in our first podcast. So there are, there are rituals, there are rules, there are strategies that we, we don't, you know, you know, you did say like I, I would call you out on the laugh early on, but we did establish a certain dynamic early on yeah. that was formalized and uh, deliberate and thoughtful. It wasn't just willy nilly. So I, I do think that yeah, I, that it was. I watched you having to field like as one of these tennis players with like when the the machine is throwing the balls at you. Uh, the, the, one of the most challenging things for you during and the, the most stressful yeah, you know was, everyone was like lessen your stress and I'm like you're stressing me out all yeah. of you <laughs> yeah stop with the unsolicited let me give you some unsolicited advice or just like I've <laughs> stop had with the unsolicited moments <laughs> with my friends where I just the way they use the word bipolar um, it feels unintentional and and I've had like really good friends, you know. All to say, I'm not going to ramble about this because I think we've reached the end of of the podcast. But I do want to just say this is the first time I've said this publicly, and um, it makes me a little bit nervous. And please um, be mindful if you in decide to engage with me on this particular topic. I am an open book, and I do love, um, you know, sharing and connecting with people. And I also want to shout out. Just some people who, friends um, who in the past little while have been very vocal about their mental health on, I'm not going to shout them out individually, but on social media or even to me personally, um, we need to destigmatize uh, mental health. Um, for me, getting diagnosed as bipolar 2 while simultaneously being inside of the biggest career moment of my life was extremely scary because I thought all of my professional uh, contexts would be deeply affected. I was like, oh my God, people are going to fucking think I'm crazy. Everyone's going to fire me. No one's going to be my friend anymore. Like it was really intense. And now I can speak about it a few months out and be like, and maybe as a sign of 
um, you know, optimism is like, yeah, you can get diagnosed as bipolar two in the middle of the biggest moment of your career and things can seem really, really wild and insane, but people will come and help you and make you feel less alone and you can, and everything can be okay. I, I think so, what, what a lesson that I've learned from you and that has been a big part of my life journey, uh, taking from like the more explosive uh, kind of, uh, just revolutionary attitude towards uh, systems that my parents' generation were part of, this kind of more 60s uh, desire to just just explode uh, any sorts of like hierarchies or expectations or morals. Uh, and it was done often without the care that was needed. Because right. there was this d need to break out. There was anger, yeah. So, like, like my old friend John Perry Barlow used to say, like, it, you don't even who's know my what. Who's my dad's best friend? <laughs> best friend, and then uh, yeah, they had a very up. contentious relationship. Um, but he was saying, but, like, we don't know what it's like now to take LSD. Uh, now we take it in a society that's pre-baked, right? Because right. we already went through this explosive time of saying, you know, we need to like. Uh, uh, basically dissolve all of the systems that were in place. You know, Timothy Leary in 1965 was giving talks that were saying like, no one over 40 should be allowed to vote and everyone <laughs> should quit their jobs and everyone should drop out of school and go back to nature. And there was this sense of like, and a lot of, there was a lot of wreckage on the way and, yeah. and families that were destroyed and children that suffered mm -hmm. and maybe it was necessary but now we have this much more care-based approach hopefully to creating to questioning boundaries and i think one of the things we've done on our two podcast episodes hopefully is to try and speak openly about things that are a bit taboo mm -hmm. whether that's a sexual you know ds dynamic or mental health issues try and be open and honest about it but also be mindful that these things should be done and this is again the lesson i've learned from you most often uh to do things carefully and mm -hmm. thoughtfully and 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 uh, make sure that the people who are around it are feel held mm -hmm. and safe uh yeah not too safe but safe enough you know that's, <laughs> we could that's do a whole podcast on just that wow yeah, let's yeah, follow it's up true. and i also we never followed up on the on the use of i have been victimized by technology um but i think maybe that's our chat gp gp3 podcast <laughs> GP3. um uh, i would it's my nickname it's like a pet nickname i like it um um Okay, I guess we'll we'll, we'll stop it. there. But um, yes, we have the we have all all of history to learn from, and all it takes is some analysis and some study of the past, and then you know all it takes. I'm like saying it's so simple, but no, building new systems of radical care um, is really really difficult, and we are just but scratching the surface of the Biennale. I we are not there yet, but I no. think there are enough people who are thinking in the same ways that we need to take care of each other, that it's not an individual problem, it's a community problem. And what does that look like? How do you show up as a community member when someone's in crisis, you know? Do you just say that's not my problem? 
or do you show up? You know, these are questions that we're answering in real time in, in, in Bombay Beach. We are not, we have not figured a lot of it out, but we are on the road. Um, the T in GPT is trained. <laughs> See, it's funny. I'm omitting it. Yes, but I'm always trying to train you. Um, it's it's a, a and I am generative. Untrainable. The G the G is generative because it generates text. The P is pre. The T is trained, so it generates text based on pre-training, because it's trained on all of the text you know of of the entire internet. So. That's uh, if people are, because my mother was asking me it when it first came out was like, what is such a weird word, chat GPT, and she couldn't get it right either. And why is it called that? And, uh, uh, and I didn't know at the time. <laughs> so now that I've gone deeper, <laughs> I can tell you it's generative pre-trained. Um, anyway, but we're going to save that. And I can't wait for the chat GPT three episode. <laughs> I have so much to say. I really do. Thank you, Dulcine. And thank, thank you, you for Tal. listening. If everyone is, anyone is still here. How long did we go? Let's see. I know we rambled a bit at the end, but that's one okay. hour and fifteen minutes. Okay, that's good. over and out. Look at that beautiful light around you. I head. know. I'm kind of sweating. <laughs>